We're going to begin um, in Matthew chapter 26 as we continue our um, pilgrimage, as it were, through um, Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and then resurrection, as Matthew has outlined it in his gospel. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26 first this, evening, this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we we recognize the, the specialness and the awe and wonder of this text and these texts that we are working through. We know that this is dealing with none other than the death of your son, the death of a majestic and glorious one. Father, we pray that you will help us. We live in a time when there's very little things that are sacred anymore. Very little things that we are in humble awe about. Very few people that we even respect anymore. And so we pray that you will help us coming from this sinful and adulterous generation. We pray that you will help us to tread on this holy ground and to, to look deeply, to consider deeply, to understand in greater reality and even joy what you have done for us in your son. Glorify your son today. Send your spirit, we ask. Glorify him in our lives, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. We're going to study this morning Jesus' first trial. Jesus actually had a couple trials. One is before the Jews, and then one will be before Pilate. And we're going to study that uh, this first trial. But before we do this, we, I just want us to pause for a few minutes here, and I want us to think about what is happening here, like who is on trial. Because I think that when you, if we grasp, just remind ourselves briefly of, of how wonderful and majestic a person this is, it helps us to see this trial in, in a clarity for what it is. I, I truly believe that, that in heaven we're not going to go to heaven and then all of a sudden see everything clearly 100%. But I think there's going to be a sense that as this stuff opens up, and I think one of the things that is going to just amaze us is that when we see Jesus in all of his glory, then thinking of him in his greatness as a mere handcuffed person, criminal, as it were, appearing being drugged in front of a bunch of unworthy men and being spit upon is, I think we'll just, the more we see his glory, the more wonder and amazement we'll have at this. So I'm just going to have on the screen here several passages just to sort of orient ourselves again as to who in fact is on trial here. And of course, in Matthew 16, 16, we saw, which is the pivotal section of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We are going to watch the son of the living God be put on trial today. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, uh, Paul writes this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you are seeing God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the heir of everything is what that means. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. Notice that phrase, by the way. All things were created through him. All things. All things were created through him. And all things were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's who's going on trial today. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. This is God's Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. We just saw that in Colossians. Jesus is heir of all things. He owns all things. Through whom also he made the worlds. All things were made through Jesus. He is the means of creation who is the brightness of his glory. And that word means like the burst of sunshine coming out of the sun. He is, he is, the, he is the sunbeam. He is the, he is the, 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 the actual uh, fullness of his glory bursting forth. He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power. That when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. So this brightness of his glory is who's going to go on trial today. And then Galatians 2.20, Paul writes this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Now check out this. This is a very important phrase. By faith in the Son of God, God's very own beloved son in the son of God. And then notice how Paul personalizes this, who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me, the very son of God. That's who we're going to see on trial today. So we're going to go through this trial and then we're going to uh, draw on some other passages of scripture to help us to understand the richness of this. So follow along with me in your Bibles in verse uh, 57 of uh, Matthew 26, and here we have sort of the scene that's described in verses 57 and 58. And those who had laid hold of Jesus, and so Jesus is, is, they grabbed him, they bound him up, and he's handcuffed, as it were, and he's being drugged and, 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 and led by people. Those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Jesus is taken to the mansion of Caiaphas, the high priest. And, and in that mansion it, right now, is there's a big meeting room. And in that meeting room are all of the scribes, all of the elders. In fact, verse 59 tells us that the entire Sanhedrin, uh, the, the major uh, legislative and religious body, they've all gathered together, which is pretty wild because they, uh, the, uh, Judas obviously gave them uh, very evident uh, intelligence that he was sure he was going to get him. He got the, the posse together. He grabbed Jesus and he got him. And they got all of these people all in the room together to be with Jesus and to try him in their sort of religious court. And so the false testimony that will lead to death begins. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say they're, they're, they're seeking testimony. It says they're seeking false testimony. They're seeking some kind of lies 
in order to put him to death. This trial is already done, okay? They've already decided that they're going to get no matter what. They don't care about true testimony. They just want anything, and they're actually looking for false testimony because there isn't any true testimony that Jesus has done anything worthy of death. And so they're seeking false testimony. They're seeking liars. They're seeking them to come out in order to put Jesus to death. Why are they doing this? Well, for several reasons. Number one, if you just look in chapter 27 and verse 18, Pilate already will figure this out. Why they, why they were choosing Barabbas or Jesus, it says this. For in verse 18, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. They hated Jesus. Envy is a set malice that you have towards somebody, and you hate them. They hated the fact that the crowds followed him. They hated what he, was, uh, what he represented. They hated him, and their hatred is so great. Their malice is so great that they want him dead. They want him dead, and they're willing to take lies. Now, now again, let's, let's, let's back up here. These people are the high priests, the chief priests, the religious people, the inheritors of the Old Testament. These are people who are supposed to be the ones who are supposed to, to usher in the Messiah. And now they are, they've gathered together and they've lowered themselves so low that now they're looking for liars in order to give anything, to patch together anything that could justify them going to Pilate and having this man put to death. And they're doing it because they're, they're envious. They're doing it because of malice. They're doing it because of hatred. And this has been building. We've been seeing this in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself has exposed these men. These men are hypocrites. These men are wicked men. And Jesus has already exposed them. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all painted white, and inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He called them hypocrites. He said, you pray long prayers, and then you rip off widows and, orphan and, and the needy. He told them that they were blind guides. They were the blind leading the blind. He says you, you tithe little, little herbs and little spices, and yet you forget justice and mercy. You swallow gnats. You strain out gnats, and you swallow whole camels. He said that tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes were closer to the kingdom of God than they are. He told people, listen to what they teach from Moses, but don't do what they do because they're blind guides. These men hated Jesus and they hated the fact that he exposed them, and they want him dead at all costs. So they're so trying to get false testimony. They're trying to get liars to come and give some kind of testimony that they can get a death sentence. But look at verse 60. But found none. But found none. So when some of the other gospel writers tell us that these guys would come, and then they would contradict themselves. In other words, what are they doing? Jesus is standing there. Jesus is there. These people are coming forward and they're lying. They're lying. And their lies are even contradicting themselves. It's a total, it's a total joke of a courtroom. They're lying is contradicting. Them. We can't use that. Get out of here. We can't use that. Get oh, what he, no, we can't use that. Get out of here. That, that, you're, you're contradicting yourselves and everything. And Jesus stands there and they can't find any false testimony why, that is comes true. Why? Because there isn't anything to convict Jesus. And that's the point. This whole text is going to point out, and every one of the gospel writers points out that try and try and try and try and try. They can't, they can't convict Jesus of anything. Why? Because he's innocent. He's innocent. What has he been doing with his life? Oh, healing people, feeding people, loving people, forgiving people, teaching people. 
He's never committed one sin in his entire life. How do you find evidence to convict a man of death like that? So finally, they get some, some character to come along, verse 61, and, sa- and it says, but at last, it says, even though, I'm sorry, verse 60, even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two witnesses came forward. See, they need two false witnesses. They need to corroborate this according to Jewish law. And uh, and according to the Old Testament, actually, they came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the other character who went and said, yeah, I heard that too. So now you have your two corroborating witnesses. And this is what they said. Now, of course, they're taking this completely out of context. We know because we've already seen Jesus say this. He wasn't referring to the temple. He was referring to his own body, the temple. And he was referring to the fact that he was going to uh, lay down his life. And then three days later, he was going to rise from the dead. They're taking this completely out of context. They're twisting this around to mean what it didn't mean when Jesus originally said it. And we see this all the time today in our modern media, uh, how, how people will say something. Then it gets all twisted around to say what. That's what's going on here. And so these men are testifying in that way. By the way, let's just say, for the sake of this, that this is true. Because in one sense, it is kind of true. Jesus did use this phraseology. I'm going to tell you, said, you see this temple? I'm going to tear it down and just and raise it in three days. And he was referring to himself. But let's imagine, just for, just for a sake, that today somebody was brought to court on trial, and this is what they had against him. I was in Washington, D.C. with this dude the other day, man. And you know what he said? He said that he was going to go to the Capitol building and tear it down with his hands. And then he said he was going to rebuild the Capitol in three days. Would a judge say, ah, there we go, execute him? (laughs) It'd be like, this guy needs therapy, maybe. This guy maybe needs some help. This guy's a little bit confused. The jury would be laughing. But a death sentence wouldn't come from something like that. And so notice what you have here. It says, these men testify. And so then, uh, yeah, we, he said he would destroy the temple of God and he would build it again in three days. And so, oh, Now notice the high priest, he even knows that he doesn't have what he needs here. He needs, he's looking for something else. So look at verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Why are you saying nothing? And look at verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. Jesus just quietly kept there silently while all of this was going on. Now, this is a very important point, by the way, that Jesus is not intervening in this trial at all. In fact, when somebody made a lie about him, Jesus just sat there and listened to the lie. He just stood there, handcuffed, and listened to the lie. People are saying, Jesus could have said, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. You're the liar. Jesus didn't do any of that. When people were making up all kinds of things again, he didn't, he didn't, he just sat there silently. Why? Well, Jesus is laying down his life. Jesus is dying for our sins. Jesus is giving himself. And so he has to endure this mockery and foolish trial. In fact, I want you to notice something. If you have a red letter Bible at this point, and I'm not saying necessarily you should have a red letter Bible. I'm just saying, if you happen to have a red letter Bible at this moment, I do, I have one in front of me here. You'll notice that at verse 57, as these trials start, you'll notice that there's very few red letters. There's verse 64, which we're about to look at. 
there's verse 57, or, I'm sorry, 75, which actually isn't Jesus speaking. It's a quote of something Jesus said earlier. So that kind of doesn't count in that sense. But then continue on through. Look at chapter 27. In verse 11, you have this five, what is it, five words? It is as you say. And then keep looking down, black, 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 no red, no red, no red, no red. And then you get to 46, and it says, my God, and God, why have you forsaken me? And that's it. And that's it. What is Matthew doing here? Matthew is showing that as a, as a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so Jesus is quiet. He's keeping his peace. He's laying down his life. He's not defending himself. He's not yelling at people. He's not reviling. He's not trying to, 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 to uh, justify himself. He's not trying to save his name. He just is simply there silent. He is giving up his life. He is a meek lamb of God, giving himself as a sacrifice. Now, finally, the, the, the high priest directs, him, uh, directs uh, to him immediately and asks him a direct question. This is the first time this has happened here at this point. Look at verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. I put you under oath. You are now under oath. What you say has carries the weight. It's like, you know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall help you, God? I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us. If you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, he knows that if he gets Jesus to say this, he's got it. All, this other, all these other knuckleheads who showed up with their false testimony, that all blew up in his face. And so now he's going for the juggler, and he says, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus answers, and he says this. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Now, let's back up. What is Jesus' answer? That can confuse people sometimes. Jesus says, it is as you said. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answers, it is as you said. Now, we've actually seen this phrase before. This is, a, this is a colloquialism of the first century. This is how you agreed with somebody what they said. For instance, we, we already saw this. Look at verse 25 of the same chapter when Jesus is speaking with Judas. It says, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And he said to him, you have said it. And so that is a form in that culture of saying yes. It's a form of saying yes. It's as you said. You said it. And we do this in our culture, too. Somebody will say, hey, you said it. I didn't. And by saying that, you're saying what you said. You said it. That's true. That's, or you can say, or somebody will say something. You say, instead of saying yes, you say, you got it. Bingo. That's it. Yep. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, how do I know that that's what Jesus is doing here? Well, we have two lines of evidence. Number one, we have other gospels. 
And in other Gospels, they, they, they are accounting this, this moment as well. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, look at how Mark says it. He says, but he kept silent, answering nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. That's this, that's, Mark is just translating it differently, more in our colloquialism, how we do, than Jesus. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus here in Matthew uh, is saying the same thing. It is, as you said, that's Jesus' way of saying I am. That's one line of evidence that Jesus is making a clear statement of who he was. But the second line of evidence is this. The high priest immediately recognized what he was saying was yes. Because the high priest, notice what he does in verse 50, 65. He tears his garment. That was, a, that was a way in, in that generation of just showing that you're, you're, you're just absolutely upset and you're grieving. He rips his robe and he says, he has spoken blasphemy. He knows that this Jesus has just affirmed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He knows that that's what he affirmed. But the second thing is this. He also recognizes that what Jesus is quoting about himself are two very important passages of Scripture that the high priest Caiaphas would have instantly known what Jesus was saying. One of them comes from Daniel, and one of them comes from Psalm 110. The Daniel chapter 7 passage says this. I saw watching in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now look at those verses. Because what the high priest heard Jesus saying, which is exactly what Jesus was saying, was, you remember Daniel 7? That's me. You're looking at him. And you're going to see that played out in life. And then the second one is Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Probably, arguably, some of the most important passages of the entire Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I will be sitting at the right hand. All of my enemies will be made my footstool. The Lord send, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. The, Jesus quotes those two verses weaves them all together in Matthew 26, 64, and says, this is who I am. And I say to you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, throne, of the power, uh, Psalm 110. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven in glory, Daniel chapter 7. This is who I am. This is what you see. And the minute, the minute that Caiaphas hears that, he tears his robe and he screams out, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Isn't that ridiculous? The actual leaders of Israel, the actual heirs of the Old Testament covenant, the actual leaders of the Old Testament, Old Covenant people, that whose very existence, the very existence of Israel, its very purpose was to bring Messiah into the world. Messiah is in the world. 
And they say, he is a blasphemer who deserves death. These religious leaders, looking at the only sinless human being ever, looking at the very Son of Man and Son of God, looking at the Son of the living God in his face, are saying, you are a blasphemer and you deserve death. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievably wicked. It's unbelievably blind. It's unbelievably evil from the most religious people supposedly on the face of the earth, these Jewish Sanhedrin scribes and Pharisees. There's scribes present here. Scribes. They spent their entire life, every waking moment, their whole job was to read the Bible, the Old Testament, line by line, phrase by phrase, word by word. And, and the whole Old Testament was about Jesus. Their entire lives were spent, and here they are absolutely miserable failures. And Jesus hears the sentence of death. Well, dear friends, the blasphemy doesn't happen in verse 64. The blasphemy now begins in earnest in verse 67. Then they spat in his face. So Jesus is bound. He can't protect himself in any way. And these religious leaders and their guards and everybody else turn violent. And all of their anger, all of their malice, all of their wrath comes out and they spit in his face. Have you ever seen somebody spit in their face by another, an adult spit in their face by another human, another adult? It's a terrible thing to see. I saw it once. It's a terrible thing to see. It's so disgusting and so humiliating. And Jesus can do nothing but just take the spit in his face. High priest, Sanhedrin, religious leaders spitting in the face of the Son of God. Spitting in the face of the one who created them. Spitting in the face of the one who created the galaxies and the worlds and the stars. Spitting in the face of the one who owns all of those and who's heir of all those. Spitting in the face of one who is the, the express image of his, of his being and the express glory, the brightness of his glory. Spitting, spittle, rolling down the cheek and the beard of, of the very beloved son of God. And then it says they beat him. And the word means to take a fist and to punch somebody to do some real damage. And then it says that others slapped him with open hands. Slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, Messiah, who hit you? Who struck you? This is the real blasphemy. This is the real blasphemy. But it's also glory. There's glory in these verses. You know why? There's no reviling. There's no reviling. Jesus does not scream back. Jesus does not defend himself. Jesus does not tell them that he's innocent. And what's really amazing, there's no 72,000 plus angels. There's no calling down the angels. There's taking the spit, taking the punches, taking the slaps, 
and the humility and mockery of his role as Messiah. He is Messiah. He could prophesy as to who slapped him. He could call down the angels. He could revile them. Just about an hour earlier, he said to the guards with their clubs, who are you after? Jesus and Nazareth. It's me. And they fell backwards. He could have simply said something and they would have all fallen to the ground. He could have begun, but he didn't do any of that. Why? Because he's intentionally laying down his life for us. He took the spit for you and me. He took the slaps for you and me. Because this is the silent lamb who is laying down his life. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, there's many lines of application here that we could make. But certainly the first and foremost must be this. Worship. Awe. Praise. Adoration. Love. Wave upon wave of gratitude. A renewed commitment to Jesus. A renewed wonder that we have been included in this. There should also even be shock. There should be some shock, even anger, even disgust. This is our king. This is our Lord. This is our savior. This is the very son of God. You see, dear friends, if we were subjects of the king, we just recently saw the passing of the Queen of England. And the Queen of England, in many ways, was a woman who was held in respect. And rightfully so. She was a, she was a respectful person and such. Could you imagine the subjects of the Queen of England watching her being treated like this? Somebody spit in her face. Could you imagine what would happen if somebody spit in the face of the Queen of England? What would, it, what would have happened? What the subjects would have felt? Or think of a, a, a person of, of, of great, a great loving person, a, a moral person, a, a person of great integrity, a, a, a person that people respect and, and hold in great admiration. I, I think of somebody, uh, he's now passed away as well, somebody like a Billy Graham. And to watch somebody like that be so humiliated publicly would cause so much disgust and anger and at the same time uh, awe and amazement for us. And that's what we should be feeling as we're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ here. But I think the other thing that we must realize is this, and I, and I hope that I can help you to grasp this so that we can grasp this without, with a clear understanding. Now, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ is truly God, okay? Jesus is fully God. He's the Word who is with God and who was God. He is fully God, God the Son. He is, the, he is the, the God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God and God the Son. But he is also fully human. And at this point, Jesus is living by faith and not by sight. Okay, I want you to understand that. Jesus is not in heaven right now. I mean, he is in heaven right now. But in this text, he is not in heaven. He is a man who is living by faith and not by sight. Okay? And there's something that's very important that I want you to see that's going on here. Okay? So please stay in Matthew, because we are going to come back here. But look at the Hebrews passage that Bill read for us. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Now, Hebrews chapter 12 comes right on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11. And if you know your Bibles, uh, you're familiar with the Bible a little bit, you'll recognize that Hebrews chapter 11 is that absolutely astounding, amazing chapter on faith that begins by saying, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is seeing the unseen. Faith is where we see. We live not by sight, but by faith, Paul says. And so faith is seeing what isn't seen. But faith, strong faith, sees it. It's real. It's there. And then the chapter 11 of Hebrews starts talking about all of these people who by faith saw the unseen and by faith suffered or, or lived or, or, or did great things by faith, okay? And then after that, that is summarized, it says this in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now that's referring to these people in chapter 11. All of these witnesses, all of these people have gone on before us. All of them, it's almost as if they're in heaven watching now. They're watching us as we are now in the arena. And this, this, is, this whole scene is an arena and it's, and it's a race. And, and think of the ancient Greek arenas and, and all there And in the stands are all these people that have gone on before us. And there are a great cloud of witnesses around us. And so notice what he says here. He says this, and now he's talking to us as if we're the runners. We're the marathon runners. Let us lay aside every weight and everything, uh, I'm sorry, let's, uh, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now this is, the, okay, so he's saying let us lay aside every weight. So think of, think of these guys getting ready to, to run this race. All these cloud of witnesses, they're in the arena, and they start taking off their heavier clothes. They start taking off any heavy clothes, maybe put on light clothes. And, and this is what, let us lay aside every weight. Think of runners today. If you've ever seen runner, if you ever held the new running shoes, if you haven't run for like 30 years like me, and then you see the new runner shoes now, it's almost like they'd float in the air by themselves. They're so light and everything. And you see the, how what runners wear now. It's all these skin tight things. Why? They're trying, to, they're trying to go without any kind of anything that would hold them back in any way. And then notice what it says here. And the sin that so easily entangles us. And that word actually means to, to ensnare, to wrap around. And so these guys would take their robes off and they would run. Some of them, some people feel that they actually ran almost naked back in, back in that day, which they do today too. Have you ever seen a modern track race? But uh, it, 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 and, and, and they've got everything. And, he's, and now he's saying, throw aside everything. Throw aside, because why? Notice what he says. He says, and let us run with endurance... Hupomane, let us run without quitting. Let us run to never stop. Let us keep going. The race that is set before us, that's what he's talking about. And we, we know from uh, marathon, even today, marathon runners, when they get to the end of the marathon, they're biologically and medically completely drained of everything, and they're running on will. That's what happens with the marathon. That's what they're saying here. Hupomane, that's what they're running on. Then look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, he's the example, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's Hupamani again, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice this verse. Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was the motivation? The joy that was set before him. And what did that motivation do? It caused him to endure the cross. He's going to go through the cross because he knows the joy is coming. He's going to go through the cross because he's looking to the joy. 
And then notice this, this phrase, despising the shame. What does that mean, despising the shame? Well, that's probably a, a difficult translation. It's a difficult word. Listen to what the word means, despising. To look down on, to esteem lightly, to seem as insignificant, to devalue, to pay no regard as to something of no account. The suffering is nothing. The spit is nothing. The slap is nothing. The, the, the false accusations is nothing. This is nothing. He despises it. He looks down upon it. It's of no account. It's nothing. Why? Compared to the joy that's going to come. Compared to the joy that's going to come. And then notice this, how this ties in with the Matthew passage. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, just like he said he was going to. This is the joy. What was Jesus' joy? The joy was he was going back to heaven. The joy he was going to be with his father again. The joy was he was going to sit upon his throne. The joy of that, and not only that, the joy of salvation, the joy that he was going to save all of us, the joy that our sins would be forgiven, the joy that he would ascend into heaven as our, as our great high priest, as our Adam, in union with us. He's going to, as it were, take us to heaven with him, and we are going to sit with him. The joy of all that he is doing, that joy was so great that he endured. He was going to go through it. He was going to see it. And so when he wanted to revile, when there was spit coming on him, when they were slapping and hitting him, in his heart and in his mind, in his eyes and by faith, he was seeing the joy. He was seeing what was coming. He was knowing that he was giving, a, he was preparing a sacrifice. He was knowing that he was saving us. And that motivated and kept him going and kept him moving forward. And that's supposed to be for us as well. Look at verse 3. For consider he who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And look at these wonderful eschatological realities. That's what these are. These are end-time eschatological realities. So if you turn back to Matthew chapter 26, notice what Jesus is doing here. He's in this false trial. These people are lying. The high priest is looking at him. And he says this in verse 64. I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of, of heaven. He says, this is the joy set before him. This is what's really happening here, friend. This is what's going on. I see it. I believe it. I know that this is mine. And dear friends, that should be an application for us as well. We need to be people like this. We need to be people who have the joy set before us, who know where we're going who know that heaven is our home, who know that Jesus has triumphed, who know that our sins are forgiven, who know that it is such a great privilege and honor to be a Christian and to be named a Christian. Dear friends, today they're canceling Christians. Today they're belittling Christians. Today they're blaming Christians for all the problems in the world, the lack of progress. That's the Christians. That's why we have these Christians, these people. They want to just make this country back, back the way it used to be. And, and, and that's, well, Christians are being made fun of today, too, today. They're being, we're being laughed and spit upon, as it were. Dear friends, we need to see the heavenly realities and believe so that these things matter very little to us. Despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame. And he endured, knowing what was coming. And dear friends, that's who we need to be. We need to have these heavenly realities so real. Our faith needs to be so strong. We have these heavenly realities so real that we realize <laughs> you're canceling. 
<laughs> you think that's supposed to move me, that you're canceling me? <laughs> you're making fun of me? You're laughing at me? Do you not see he's coming again? Do you not see that I'm going to reign with him? Do you not see that salvation? Do you not see eternity is coming? <laughs> this stuff means nothing. See, when we have the joy set before us, it will steal us and make us determined. It will make us unbreakable. And we'll even have joy in the midst of the persecutions. I didn't have time to go to these passages that Bill read out of 1 Peter, but so many of them, Peter is saying, listen, listen. Don't revile. Jesus revived, didn't revile. Don't you revile them. They revile you because you're Christian. Don't revile them. Blessed are you, Peter says. Blessed are you. He, he listened to Jesus in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, Blessed are you when men say all kinds of evil on my behalf. Peter's saying, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And you're going to reign with that. That's a sign that you're a Christian. It's a sign the Holy Spirit lives with you. When they, when they revile you, that's good. Don't revile them back. Jesus didn't do that. Don't you do that. But for the joy set before you, be patient in reviling. Be patient when you're canceled. Be patient and looking for the joy that is to come. Oh, dear ones, it's here. It's coming. He is God. Jesus is risen again. And this is our salvation. Oh, that you would have, you would know this salvation. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, what we can do at this point is just simply pause in awe and amazement and wonder and just thank you. Thank you so much. We can say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord Jesus, thank you that every Christian in this room can right now just sit in humble adoration and praise in great joy and say thank you. Thank you for being silent in that trial. Thank you for enduring it. Thank you for allowing them to lie about you. Thank you for not calling down the angels. Thank you for not thinking about yourself. Thank you for thinking about us. Thank you for allowing them to spit upon your most glorious face. Thank you for allowing them to beat you and slap you and publicly humiliate and shame you. And thank you that you accounted that shame very little for the joy set before you. Help us, we pray. Help us to stand tall as Christians. Help us to be proud, to be associated with you, not in a sinful way, but in a sense of dignity. Help us to identify with you no matter what they say with the hope that that great day when you actually do break through with the 72,000 plus, plus, plus angels, that we will be owned by you on that day. You won't be ashamed of us. Help us, we pray. Help us. Make us people of deep, deep faith. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.